Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, hello, April Callahan. How are things going? <laughs> well, um, I, apparently we're practicing social distancing. Correct. <laughs> but that's not necessarily anything new, dress listeners. I don't know if you guys have ever really picked up on this, but I live in New York and Cass lives in New Mexico. So sometimes, well, a lot of the time, the the episodes of Dress that you're hearing, we are actually in totally different geographical regions and are edited together by the miracle of technology. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Casey Pegram. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I let's talk about the elephant in the room maybe quickly and get it over mm-hmm. with, but how are things going in New York City? Well, I have to say it's a little tense here, i.e. the coronavirus, the grocery stores have been pillaged, I have to say. But then again, I went to Trader Joe's just yesterday, and I found just about everything I was looking for. So I want to give a big shout out to all of those people that are working in those industries that are working like overtime and working in overdrive to make sure that everybody has everything that they need. Keep safe out there, keep healthy, wash your hands, and don't forget to continue, if you can, to support small businesses during this time. Absolutely. Uh, past dress guest, Karina Emmerich, actually has, um, she has, before this ever happened, she makes these like badass face masks. And so she, of course, is getting a ton of orders for these currently. Um, although she did, she just put a video up today, I think, reminding us that these are not medical filter masks. Um, but they really do help you to keep your face covered and keep you from touching your mouth unintentionally with your hands. So Right. And, and that's a whole other thing about this face mask thing is that all of the like scientists and all of the doctors are saying that wearing a face mask is not going to keep you from potentially contracting the virus. It's more about like not touching your your own skin. Yeah, exactly. And washing your hands and practicing social distancing. So mm-hmm. we'll all figure this out together, guys. So just remember to do it with compassion and love. And, you know, April, I think we thought today was a particularly apt episode of Fashion History Now because we're going to recommend things for our dress listeners to do, um, perhaps without even having to leave the comfort of their own homes. Um, There's so much reading, documentaries, movies, TV shows to watch, and of course, over 130 dressed episodes to catch up on (laughs) or revisit. (laughs) True. Uh, Where do you want to start? Well, I actually thought um, I wanted to remind our listeners about a really awesome online resource that I know I've talked about on the show before. And forgive me if I mispronounce it. April can maybe correct me. It's the Helbrun Timeline of Art History at the Met Museum. Of course. Um, H-E-I-L-B-R-U-N-N, Timeline of Art History. And of course, we'll post links to this in the show description so you can get a link um, and go right there. But so this is something that was originally launched well in 2000, so 20 years ago. They tell us that it presents the Met's collection, quote, via chronological, geographical, and thematic exploration of global art history. 
And not just art history, but costume and textile and dress and fashion history. And there are so many incredible essays on there. It's a rabbit hole for sure. And so what they do is they have, you know, these scholars write these essays, but you can, they link them to actual uh, works in the collection. Yeah. So you can read about it. You can pair it with a photograph and an image of a garment that they're talking about. And they have everything from ancient Greek dress to Charles James. There's an essay on the Countess Castigliani or dress reform. And I want to talk specifically about this article called Dressing for Cocktail Hour by Alyssa DeCruz. She talks all about the origin of the cocktail hour and cocktail dressing that went almost hand in hand with that evolution starting in the 1920s. And just a little quote from that. She says, By 1929, with the aid of liberation parties like the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, women had become more visible in the social sphere and the quote-unquote modern woman was born. This drinking woman, in parentheses, (laughs) (laughs) or in quotations, she was an idea rooted in newfound concepts of individuality and a denial of Edwardian matronly functions. She emerged at private cocktail soirees and lounges and the cocktail dress as a short evening sheath with matching hat, shoes, and gloves was designated to accompany her. The cocktail affair generally took place between 6 and 8 p.m. Cocktail garb, by virtue of its flexibility and functionality, became the 1920s uniform for their progressive fashionable elite. And then she goes on to trace it throughout the 30s, 40s and 50s. So, um, and it, you know, these essays don't just cover fashion. They cover a whole range of topics around history and art around the world. They also have all the Met publications online. So you can get, browse um, full catalogs like the Alexander McQueen exhibit. There's like everything you can imagine. So it'll definitely keep you busy. Check it out. Occupied. Definitely occupied. So this isn't necessarily something to do now, per se, maybe in the future. But um, the other weekend, Cass, I whipped up some plastic. Oh. Biodegradable plastic, to be precise. (laughs) Um, I just want to say thank you to past guest dress Tara St. James for having me at one of her very recent workshops. And, And they are still putting these workshops on. So that's why I'm saying maybe not right now. Hello, Corona. But they are going to continue to do these workshops, which was part of her educational and consulting initiative resource. And some of you may recall that Tara joined us on season one to talk about the history of sustainability and fashion. So she runs the ethical women's wear brand Study New York and also Resource, like R-E, colon source. Um, And Resource has a textile library. They have a digital database, which also features products of companies who are creating fabrics responsibly. So if if you are also practicing social distancing, you can check that out. Um, But she also offers very cool in-person classes and workshops, also one-on-one appointments for designers that are wanting to learn more about taking their business into like a sustainable and ethical model. And some of these are even online. Designers can even get professionally certified on how to navigate supply chains, which is, of course, key in terms of transparency in the fashion industry. And this is something that we have brought up many, many, many times on the show. So all I have to say is that 
There are so many incredible things that are in the work, dress listeners. My mind was kind of blown in the course of a single afternoon to learn so much about plastics, and also there are material alternatives. So the session that Tara and Resource put on was led by Andrea Lauer, who I think might be joining us as a guest very soon because she teaches a class at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, on the history of jumpsuits. Oh, yeah. Cass. <laughs> <laughs> a whole course on the history of jumpsuits. You wow. know I have never met a jumpsuit that I didn't like. This is very true. <laughs> yeah. The Cass is always like, I never see you wear pants. And I'm like, but I wear jumpsuits. Does that count? <laughs> but uh, so hopefully she'll be joining us soon. But a few things about this workshop that I went to that really kind of like was completely eye-opening. I didn't know that there are seven types of plastics and only three of them are recyclable. Plastic number one, number two, and number five. Right. I had no idea. And uh, also... Cass, did you know that cellophane is a bioplastic? I guess I did not know that, no. Yeah. So the majority of cellophane that's used um, in the floral industry is actually made from wood. I had no idea. Therefore, it can degrade naturally, and you can't necessarily recycle it, but it will break down over time if it has enough access to oxygen. Um, so also packing peanuts, a lot of companies now are making them out of wheat or cornstarch so they can basically break down in water. You can even also compost them, which is very, very cool. And I'm going on and on here at length a bit about this because I was super excited about it. But the work that we did that day, basically we were kind of like kids at camp having a blast at the craft day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Under Andrea's instruction, we learned how to make our very own biodegradable plastics. So we had pots and pans out. There was a lot of stirring and mixing on a portable cooktop. And, and bioplastics are very easily, simply made at home. I had no idea. They are made from three main bases. You can use algae. You can use corn or other starches like yucca or gelatin, and you can even make bioplastics out of the hipster drink of choice kombucha. I mean, <laughs> just saying. Um, and all of these, they break down very easily over time, and perhaps most importantly, they break down in water. And as we all know, plastics in the ocean are a major, 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 major problem. I read a statistic earlier today saying that if we don't do something about this plastic problem, that by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Yep. Don't quote me on this, but I did read this, <laughs> and I was like, what? It's very upsetting. So these plastic alternatives, they're fascinating, you know, and making them water-soluble is definitely a step in the right direction. But while it's a pro, it's also a little bit of a con because as Andrea mentioned um, when we were taking the class, she's actually working on making a biker jacket out of bioplastics that she's creating. But that brings up the point of like what happens if it rains, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Clearly that's an issue. <laughs> Has to be able to be flipped inside out um, into your cotton lining for protection or something. I don't know. Or coated in beeswax. 
Oh, yeah. All those cool beeswax like covers for your glass dishware is so mm-hmm. cool. That's There's a lot more and more of those coming out. Um, so many awesome solutions. So many people around the world working to solve these solutions. And we as consumers just need to continue to educate ourselves and shop and act responsibly. But, you know, I just gave this lecture on Sunday about um, you know, it was totally about the modern woman, emergence of modern fashion, early 20th century. I don't know what happened, but in my Q&A, it started asking about fashion, you know, historic fashion, and then very quickly evolved into a talk on sustainable fashion. People responded so, so, so um, enthusiastically when I said, you know, the future of fashion is sustainable. And I think people are really, really want to know how they can help and how they can affect change because we're all in it together, people. Yep. For sure. And and I do I do think that we're a little bit right now at this infancy stage or an experimental phase where people are trying to hammer out the solutions to these problems. A lot of these products aren't yet quite mainstream, but this industry has known about bioplastics for a very, very long time. It's just that it hasn't converted to them because petroleum-based plastics are much cheaper to produce. So... Mm-hmm. I just want to say, bioplastics, get to know this term. It's your friend. It's your future. And we had a ton of fun literally cooking up Andrea's recipes. Um, <laughs> and the recipes are really simple. You, We, in the workshop, made two different types of plastic. We made one that used a cornstarch base and another one that used a gelatin base. Both of these recipes use distilled water and glycerin. And glycerin is very cool because you can actually create the texture of the plastic by increasing or decreasing the amount of glycerin in terms of the pliability of the plastic. Mm -hmm. Um, Cornstarch also needs a little bit of vinegar to kick off the chemical reaction. But once we had our bases of these bioplastics, we could add color by way of food dyes and Terra actually you brought in some biodegradable glitter. So you better bet there was a lot of glitter in our bioplastics that we were making that day. So it was it was great. It was really fun. And you could even use like leftover scraps of textiles and like encapsulate it within your bioplastic to give it a certain type of rigidity. Like um, we had some tool that we used and that we encapsulated in the bioplastic. And I mean, the, once you start playing with these, things in these materials, you can see that their end use is limitless once we kind of like get the science down a tad more. Oh, yeah. And you'll have to, I think you posted pictures a while back as kind of a hint, but you'll have to maybe post a couple more pictures about I will. Um, of, of your workshop because they're really, really, really cool. Yeah. I'm very cool looking. I'm a very texture driven person and I wanted to touch those instantly <laughs> <laughs> through my screen. What else? What do you have? I happen to know that you are a huge RuPaul fan. Uh Uh-huh. As am I. I have said from before we even started this podcast, there are three people that I I feel like if we can get all these people on the show, we know we've made it. (laughs) RuPaul's one of them. Uh, Pat Cleveland, who you interviewed already, has already been on the show. And my other one is Dapper Dan, who we're going to talk about here in a minute, but yes, huge RuPaul fan. So I have to know, are you watching AJ and the Queen on Netflix? No. What? Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, back up. What happened? 
I am actually quite surprised. You have not talked to me about this, so I know. I guess I know you're not watching, but this is a scripted TV show. This is RuPaul's first starring role in a scripted television show. Wait, he's on a television? I mean, I've seen him in movies before as an actor. Nope, it's a 10-episode television show, and you are probably going to binge watch it immediately, as are many of our listeners, because if you have not watched the show, it is incredible. I laughed, I cried, I was inspired (laughs) beyond belief. Um, This show is amazing. It's on Netflix, 10 episodes. Wait, what's it called again? It's called AJ and the Queen. Okay, all right, I'm in. And and basically the premise is RuPaul plays Robert, who's kind of a down-on-his-luck drag queen. Um, And his drag queen, uh, he performs his drag queen, Ruby Red. Uh, And he goes basically on this eight-week drag tour across America and he, unbeknownst to him, has this 10-year-old stowaway, um, this kid whose, mo- whose mother is <laughs> not around. Um, she's in jail. She's a drug addict. Um, this kid is basically living on his own, on her own. They've been evicted from their apartment. She lives above RuPaul and his incredible blind drag queen roommate, Lewis. What? That dynamic is amazing. I, I want to know more about how you do your makeup when you're a blind drag queen. Yeah, Lewis is like the you know one of the heart and souls of this show. But um, this show is so heartwarming. It's about this relationship between Robert and this little girl AJ, and you know how they're both dealing with a lot of identity crisis. Um, you know they're just dealing with a lot of hardships throughout their life, and it's how they form this incredible friendship. All the while, each episode you are guaranteed a new drag, you know, RuPaul, Ruby Red performance. Moment. Costume moment. That is worth every penny. Um, These costumes are designed by RuPaul's longtime collaborator, Zaldi. And, you know, the costume designer is Tracy Gigi Field, and she does RuPaul's daytime looks. But Zaldi is the one who's responsible for these incredible um, drag costumes. Uh, He just did an interview with CR Fashion Book, and that I'll quote here. He said, when I design for Drag Race, I'm designing for the muse RuPaul, which is totally different from designing for a character played by RuPaul. You have to get into the character's head and have to have a developed, fully realized, and believable whole character on day one. And when I say these costumes are jaw-droppingly beautiful, I am, that's like an understatement. They are exquisite, divine, incredible There's a literal chandelier costume. (laughs) Of course there is. (laughs) Everything you basically could hope for, plus this really heartfelt story. So I highly recommend watching this. It's a very easy binge. I watched it in, I think, three days. So check it out. I just have to say, like, Cass and I did not plan this out, that we were actually going to talk about, like, two of the people that we have wanted most to be on the show. But... But it just brings me back to the other thing that I want to talk about. I want to talk about Dapper Dan because I am reading his memoir right now, Cass, and it's called Made in Harlem. Incredible. Well, we'll get to like the fashion bent here in, here in a second, but I just want to say that Dap is a stellar writer. I really, really am super into his writing style. It's very quick. It's very energetic. He doesn't waste words telling his story. So it's kind of like his writing style is very slick and lean. And I I really appreciate that as a writer. And I am 
more than halfway through his book, and it's just now to the point where he opens up his boutique, which he didn't do until he was 39 or 40 years old. So he didn't start his fashion career until that point. Up until then, he was a street hustler and professional gambler. And I went to one of his lectures recently, um, and, and it was also a book signing. And I have to say, this man is an incredibly special human being. He is really insightful, and he has a wealth of life experiences, a lot of them very, very bad, a lot of them very, very good. Um, And just the way that he kind of like sees his life and is able to talk about his experiences is super-duper inspiring. He talks about growing up poor in Harlem— He started becoming a master of the art of playing street dice and become literally a master at this when he was in third grade. Like, that's when he started (laughs) doing this, right? He talks about being a heroin addict. He talks about being a drug dealer. He talks about the time that he spent in jail in Aruba for credit card fraud. And all of this leads up to this ultimate path of him becoming a fashion designer and one of the hottest, hippest fashion designers right now working in partnership with Gucci. So, you know, his story is both, I would say, heartbreaking, but it's also insanely inspirational. Um, And I think it's a really candid look at the circumstances into which many African-American men are born into here in the United States and, and all of these tough choices that they face growing up. So, I am completely in awe of this book right now. And um, Dap talks about how he's a voracious reader. And he said um, at the lecture that I went to that there's nothing, there's no problem that he hasn't been able to, quote, read his way out of, hmm. which which I thought was really, really amazing. I mean, he dropped out of school when he was in middle school, but um, has really created his own educational path and and put all of that education into practice, into um, all of these professional kind of hustles over, his, over the course of his whole life. So hopefully he may be joining us on the show. Fingers We've ex- crossed. Extended this invitation. So if Jelani Day, if you're listening to this, Please, let's make this happen. But in the meantime, if you want to read a really inspirational book, you can check out Dapper Dan, Made in Harlem. And and the end point of this, which I don't really want to get into until perhaps Dap joins us on the show, is that he was ultimately very instrumental in creating the look of hip-hop. So there's that. I'm a little smitten, if you can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and like you said, Dapper Dan has been on our list since day one. And I mean, for those of our listeners who might not know who he is, she, you mentioned his influential boutique, right? I think it's Dapper Dan's boutique open in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. kind of his signature look is buying like Louis Vuitton printed fabric or Louis Vuitton's fabric and material and refashioning it into like these hip hop garments. Or even printing it. Yeah. 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 So really incredible, really influential and very, very inspiring. I'm going to have to get my hands on that memoir as well. Yeah. Well, I would say I would send it to you, but it's on my Kindle, so I can't. (laughs) I will get it myself. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Such is the power of the internet dress listeners. So we hope we've given you um, plenty of ideas, a couple of things to look forward to, a couple of things you can do now, certainly plenty of individuals and books um, to look up immediately and start, um, you know, reading about and hopefully being inspired by. Um, and yeah, that I think that does it for us this week. Yep definitely does. Um, Please join us on Tuesday for our full-length episode. And as always, thank you very much to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Talk to you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.